You should never be ashamed of stuff that happens mm-hmm. to you, whether you have a stoma, whether you've been raped, whether you lose all your hair, whether you have to have a prosthesis bowl. Like this is not stuff that we chose. Welcome everyone to the 25 Stay Alive podcast. I'm Hugo and as always, I'm joined by Dahlia. Welcome, Dahlia. Hello, Hugo. I don't know why I'm talking like that, but hello. <laughs> hello, Dahlia. You can just talk normally. I can just talk normally. Hello, Hugo. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Dahlia. How are you? There we go. Now we've got that cleared up. <laughs> Look, before we do get into today's episode, it is a pretty powerful one. I just want to quickly ask you, Dahlia, how are you after your last ever round of chemo? I am well. I am feeling much better today after a very shitty weekend. However, I'm really feeling excited to sort of get my life back. I don't have to be like organizing my life around these fortnightly cycles. I can just make plans however I like. So I'm very much looking forward to that. No, it's fantastic. So look, we will jump into today's episode and we sat down with with a pretty brave young lady and her name's Michelle. And basically her journey started when she was sexually assaulted years ago and she was only 23. She, I guess she openly talks about this and and how it's, I guess, helped her uh, cope with with other adversities in life, which is which is. Yeah, she definitely made it sound like it shaped how she was able to cope with the adversities that she has now faced later in life. And look, that's exactly what what we talk about, and her battle with cancer, and and terminating a pregnancy. Uh, you know, her ongoing, I guess, battle with with mental health. Uh, and so, yeah, it's and her misdiagnosis as well. She was misdiagnosed twice. Oh, and yeah, through this whole... yeah, exactly, and something like that that to be misdiagnosed with cancer. I, uh, I could not imagine. Imagine how that would feel. Twice in your early 30s. Yeah. And then <laughs> yeah. it's, it's unbelievable. We'll, we'll to have... get into that. We, we won't give away too many spoilers. I know. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but no, look, it's, um, and look, like I said, we're, we're, we're laughing around a bit, but look, it is a bit more of an emotion episode, but we definitely will post some links to some support services. And I know we do talk about it in the episode Beyond Blue and all that type of stuff. But look, thanks everyone again for, for tuning in. We really appreciate all your support. So sit back, relax, enjoy the episode. Unless you're driving, eyes on the road. Yeah, no, don't, don't be, don't be. Um, don't podcast and drive. <laughs> you may podcast and drive as long as you start the podcast prior to uh, putting your keys into the vehicle. Correct safety procedures. Today we've got a special guest. Her name is Michelle Moore. Hello, Michelle. Hey, Dahlia. Hey, Hugo. Hey, Michelle. She's here with me in Adelaide. You were born in Adelaide, yes, Michelle? Yep, born in Adelaide. Excellent. All three of us, born and raised. Absolutely great place to live. <laughs> Anyone ragging on Adelaide can fight me. <laughs> so I think what the, the best way to start this off, we'll just dive straight into Michelle's story, really. We'd just love to hear um, your journey, any obstacles that you have. So, so when was the first symptom that really prompted you to head to the doctors? So I got married on Saturday 24th, 2018. Um, next day on the 25th my husband and I had stayed overnight at a, another country cottage uh, I woke up I was putting you know doing my face and putting on a moisturizer and I felt like a weird hard lump and it was just at the base of my neck so I thought oh that's really odd when I touched it I got an internal feeling that was I just knew it wasn't right didn't hurt but just my insides felt nauseous um, so I told Danny and yeah, that was pretty much the only symptom that I actually had. Um, even though I didn't think I had cancer, as soon as I had that hard lump in my neck, I just knew that that could signify something wrong. You said you initially didn't think it was probably cancer at that stage. Mm-hmm. Look, because how, how old were you then? Just before I turned 32, yeah. So Early 30s, you've just got married. Cancer is mm-hmm. probably not, not on your mind as things you expect to have when you've got a little lump on your neck. 
Um, mm-hmm. I suppose when was it then? Well, what prompted you to then go to sort of see the doctor and then kind of what followed from there? Yeah, so we we're heading off to our honeymoon um, and our honeymoon was meant to be a sort of six-week extended period holiday. So we just thought I didn't want to, in case it was like a throat infection or something coming up, I just didn't want to risk having antibiotics over in Bali. So yeah. I thought, I said to Danny, Look, I just really just feel like I need to go to the doctor and have this checked before we leave. It's uh, yeah, it all happened pretty quick for you, but you then saw the doctor. Yeah, it was really strange. So I went to the doctor. It was just a walk-in doctor. My GP um, is quite hard to get into. So I went to just a walk-in and she looked at the lump and I'd had a lump come up about three months prior and it went down about a week and a half later. And their general guide is if the lump doesn't go down within two weeks, then they investigate further. So mm-hmm. I, when I saw this doctor, I told her, look, you you would see on my file, like three months ago, I came in, I had lump. So she didn't even discuss antibiotics. She just went straight for, I'm going to send you to Adelaide MRI today. Um, I think it's best that you just get an ultrasound just so that you can enjoy your honeymoon and everything will be okay. I saw a radiographer and she scanned the lump. She didn't say too much, but she went out and got the radiologist. So he came in and he explained to me that it looked like I had lymphoma. Yeah, what, what was it like hearing that? I suppose it's obviously well, Dahlia, and, Dahlia and I have both had that similar situation when you get told that, you know, you've got cancer and we've spoken about in the previous podcast episodes that sometimes you don't really process it all. Um, I know the first time I got diagnosed with testicular cancer, I didn't really process it all. But how did you at that point in time in your life when you actually got told you had lymphoma, did you know Mm -hmm. things were pretty serious from there? Well, to be honest, I actually didn't even know really what lymphoma was. And I I kind of figured it was a cancer, but um, they don't usually give you that information. So radiologists aren't really meant to give you that information. They give it to a doctor who then sits you down and then goes through what's going on. So I was in shock. And again, like you probably trying to process, I just said to him, what do you mean? Like, hold on. Like I feel better than I've ever felt in my life. What do you mean? I've got cancer. So when I went back to the surgery, the doctor who had sent me to the Adelaide MRI had gone off shift And they put me with a different doctor to interpret the result. I walked into the office and he said, so what do you think of all of this? I said, what? Um, I don't know. What what do you think of all of this? And he said, well, look, I don't think the report matches the scans. And I said, oh, really? And he said, well, yes. And radiologists should never give a diagnosis. And I said, okay. And he said, look, I've just been from Queen Elizabeth Hospital. I've been working there for the last few years in um, the ENT. Uh, to me, it's a sinusitis. And he shined like a torch up my nose, in my ear. And he said, yep, definitely. I said, are you 100% sure? Because, you know, wow. we're going to try to have kids. <laughs> and he said, yes. And um, he said, yep, 100% and sort of sent me on my way. So when I left that office, I was extremely confused and I wanted to believe it wasn't. And I ended up finding out he was actually just a registrar. He was a junior doctor. So he wow. disregarded a professor's opinion. Um, but it wasn't until later that I found that out. So, hang on. Just so, so you've just been, you've gone through this process. You've just been told you've got lymphoma and to go see a doctor immediately. Mm-hmm. And you're about to go on your honeymoon. You've kind of put that on pause and you've gone back to this doctor. You couldn't see your regular doctor. So you've seen this, this other doctor who you've then found out to registrar. And he's mm-hmm. blatantly said, look, it's not lymphoma. I just don't get how I, uh, in that position, how you can 
have such a serious situation and a doctor can just so blatantly and confidently say, oh, no, no, it's definitely not lymphoma, whilst yeah. you're wanting to, to try for a baby and yeah. you're about to go on your honeymoon. But what do you do? You, you like to think you can listen to these doctors' opinions. Did you know, like, were you confident or was your family kind of happy and kind of going, yeah, she doesn't have lymphoma? Or what was going through your mind before departing on your honeymoon? Yeah, so the lump was very small. Like I'm talking the size of a piece of corn, if that. Like you, I would have to move my neck to side to side to actually feel it. I guess I thought, oh, look, I'm probably an anxious person. So I think for everyone's care and for life to just feel like it was normal and for me to feel good, I just went, okay, well, he said it's not. Let's just go with it being not. So yeah, why would you not want to take the more optimistic advice? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Exactly. Would you obviously putting yourself in, in your shoes February last year, knowing what you know now, it's mm-hmm. obviously a good one for the listeners as well that often Dahlia and I touch on this, you know, getting those second, third, fourth opinions from different doctors is just so, so bloody important. And we've heard time and time again, and I know Dahlia's got a, a friend with um who've been through bowel cancer and she's had a similar thing where they kept t- turning her away and said, you're too young for bowel cancer. You're too young for bowel cancer. And I just hate hearing these stories because look, at least you're alive and well today. But imagine if it went the other way and you've got this doctor saying, no, no, you definitely don't have it. You know, here's a prescription for your sinus infection. It's um, yeah, pretty full on. This friend that Hugo's talking about was actually misdiagnosed for five years. She was passing blood um, yeah, from crazy. her bum. It's absolutely crazy. But going back to your point, Hugo, 100%, if you intuitively think that something's wrong or you're not happy with any results, like I've worked in medical for general practices for over or five years now at least, and I could 100% tell you doctors are human. It doesn't mean that they're intentionally doing anything. Nothing is never malicious. It's just egos can get in the way. Um, the fact that lymph- lymphoma, especially non-Hodgkin's, is so rare in my age group and for women as well. You know, there's so many reasons that people can make their own decisions. And just because a doctor has that study doesn't necessarily mean that they know everything. Yeah. Spot on. It's almost a blessing in disguise that the radiographer kind of let it slip even though he wasn't supposed to. 100%. I called up actually that MRI place um, and I let I like, sent them flowers and I said, thank you so, so much because I probably wouldn't have followed through as quick as I did if there wasn't um, any type of, if I hadn't had that sort of word going around my head the whole honeymoon. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point though you said there, Michelle, and Exactly that. Certain things like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, it, might, it might be rare. And things like, obviously, Dale and I have experienced the same thing with bowel cancer. A lot of the time they go, it's an older person's cancer. But the thing is that something like cancer doesn't discriminate. And I think that's the big one people need to realize is they're not invincible from, from these types of things. And I think taking responsibility for your own health as well. You know, it's being aware, being proactive. You've got to be educated in your own healthcare because in the end, it's your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So upon the advice that you got from this doctor, you decided to go on your honeymoon and you and your husband decided that you were going to start trying for a baby. Yeah. We had 11 nights in Bali. Uh, We were actively trying on our honeymoon to have children. As you do do on a honeymoon. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. To be honest, that trip was amazing that 11 days because the first four or five days, it was easy to sort of forget 
um, anything that was going on um, because we just really tried to focus on relaxing. But then when we left Bali, um, we went into Queensland, Green Island, and about three days into Green Island, I just felt like the lump was getting bigger and intuitively or internally, every time I touched it, I would, as I said, I'd feel nauseous and I just said, we've got to, we've got to do something about this. And I flew back in on a Friday and I went straight from the airport to Dr. Jones and Partners and had a course biopsy done on the two lumps in my neck. I don't know what you call it, gut intuition, but you just felt that something just wasn't right. Yeah, it was incredible. I, I, I still can't even explain it to this day. I just knew. And you cut your honeymoon short and then you yes. went straight from the airport in Adelaide straight to Dr. Jones and Partners. Wow. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. uh, you almost need a, a, mud, a bloody mind map to, uh, to track your, <laughs> your story, Michelle. It's pretty incredible to think that from your wedding day to diagnose lymphoma, to saying it was misdiagnosed, to going on your honeymoon, to trying for a baby, to then getting that feeling and cutting your honeymoon short, going back to Adelaide to get further tests done. For then how long did it take before you got the follow-up phone call, the follow-up appointment to actually say exactly what you had? So, yeah, I remember it as if it's a slow movie being played. He called my phone. I was in my bathroom and my like ensuite and I walked into my bedroom, the light was off um, and he said, hi, Shell, just give me a call. It's been confirmed. You do have a disease, non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Oh, no. um, I remember slowly just sitting down on my bed and I was quite shockingly calm um, and he said, I've organized that you see a hematologist at Adelaide Cancer Center in Tennyson. I understand this is probably a lot to take in so I can do it for in a week or two. I said, no, get me in tomorrow if you can. Hung up, called my mum. Sorry, Danny. But I called mum first and then I called my husband who was at work. And yeah, everyone was buzzing around my house before I know it. How did you find, I suppose, actually breaking it to them? I didn't feel as bad saying it to mum. I don't know why. I think I just went into that mode of just out of shock. I was just I was so calm, like, mum. I have lymphoma. I just remember saying that. Calling my husband was absolutely heartbreaking for me because uh, he's definitely a more emotional person than I am. And I could just hear the panic in his voice. It was confronting, but at that stage, I still didn't really know what I was facing. I didn't really know a lot of lymphoma. For me, telling my mom, especially already having one child with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and then for me to have to tell her that another one of her children has also been diagnosed with cancer was actually one of the most difficult times for me, I would say. I I actually didn't even tell her. I had my husband, we were all sitting in the lounge room and I actually had my husband, David, tell her because I didn't really have words. She kind of walked in looking quite shocked that we're kind of like sitting around. I have goosebumps just thinking of that. Um, Is your brother okay? Yeah, he's been in remission and has conceived naturally and has a beautiful, beautiful 18-month-old who's my best friend. So, yeah, no, he's doing very well. Thank you for asking. At that point, after you were diagnosed, what sort of steps did you have to take prior to discussing treatment plans? Yeah, so I met with uh, my hematologist, absolutely amazing man. He was very thorough in explaining to me the two types of lymphomas, so Hodgkin, non-Hodgkin. Um, he told me I have diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which, which is actually the most common non-Hodgkin lymphoma. He then told me he was aware that I was pregnant and unfortunately it was very unlikely that I or the baby would survive if I was to carry So it wasn't really a question. It was, we have to terminate first. 
and then we can go through the staging processes which then would lead us to what the treatment was. What was so, going through your mind at this point when, when you was explained that, that it wasn't really an option to keep your baby? Again, I think I was in shock. I was heartbroken for my husband. I felt, I I just felt guilty. I felt less of a woman. I felt like I had promised him for so many years because he wanted to have children before we got married. And I said, no, we can wait. We get married first. So I just, I felt so fucking guilty is how I felt. How many, um, yeah, you you poor thing, Michelle. Like I couldn't imagine what it's like to being not only told you've got cancer, but then in the space of a few days later, having to then terminate a pregnancy. How many weeks were you actually pregnant? I found out I was nine weeks. So um, I was able to get in for a termination about two days later. So that two days was probably hell because that was where I felt for my Mm. husband more than anything. And, you know, you keep looking at those pregnancy tests and you're like, like I, it just, it was so unreal. It was wild. How did you actually handle walking out once it, you actually terminated your pregnancy, walking out knowing that you no longer had, had your baby? Was it more difficult, different feeling, as difficult as being told you had cancer? Or was it just, a, did you kind of accept it? Like what was, what was going through your mind when you left that, that situation? More upset that I, the risk of not being a mum than having cancer because that was just something I'd really, really wanted and we were working towards before. So with me, prior to commencing chemo, I was recommended to have IVF and to store some embryos. Was there any chance of infertility um, with the chemo that you would be undergoing? So I had the appointment with Fertility SA the day after the termination. They explained to me that unfortunately the hormones that they have to give you to produce 20 plus eggs so that they're able to take those eggs won't work if you have the hcg hormone in your body when you terminate a pregnancy or if you miscarriage the hcg hormone stays in your body for six weeks so they said to me are you willing to wait i asked my hematologist he said max i would give you is two weeks so we wouldn't have enough time so then the option that the only option I had to protect those eggs uh, was to put me into menopause. So they they started giving me an injection called Zolidex, um, which also they use for breast cancer chemo, but basically it stops blood flow to go to your ovaries. It tricks your body into thinking you're in menopause and the idea is the chemo which is going through your blood won't get to those eggs. However, Zolidex can make you infertile too. So it was... And how Always up in hearing all of that, being told that you have cancer, having a pregnancy, terminating your pregnancy, and then being told that maybe you might not be able to conceive. Again, I felt horrible for my husband. Like that was my main thing. I, I think for me, it was so overwhelming to think of that I couldn't truly actually comprehend yeah, um, that that was not a possibility. And you know what? I was purely in survival mode at that stage too. So I wasn't overly looking, like even though I was looking to have a future, I wasn't looking at what was going to happen in that future. But it was, yeah, absolutely confronting, absolutely terrifying. I must ask though, because you seem very open in sharing your story, Michelle, and like what you've gone through in the space of what a month has been unbelievable. You talk about it very openly now. Have you always been so open with your sharing your emotions and being that kind of strong, stable person or is it, has 
always been like that your whole life? Yeah, no. So definitely not always been open. Um, I got uh, raped about nine years ago. Uh, so sorry to hear that. Michelle. Yeah, no. Yeah, um, th- like, and I appreciate that. It's it's really so. This is the crazy paradox with cancer. It was absolutely heartbreaking, but to be through, to go through like a rape, which had a lot of mental health issues come across, like come with it, there was very minimum support. And even though we do have the Me Too movement, it's quite a lot different when someone actually wants to express that type of story because it does make people so uncomfortable and that it isn't a, oh, I can show you a test paper and show you I have cancer. It's a, okay, you have to, I have to prove that this actually yeah, happened you have to as well. And really it just ended up being such a detriment to me. I ended up trying to manage it through prescribed prescription medication um, as well as, you know, just other behaviours of choice which weren't that healthy. and it sent me onto a really downward mental spiral. And so from there, I really just learned a lot of different tools on how to deal with uh, mental health. And I, yeah, I just felt like if this is my only time to ever tell my story, then I'm going to tell it exactly how I'm going to tell it. And that's what prompted me to now be just so open about it. I think that's really important as well, because for me, I was so embarrassed about my ileostomy and it was something that really like brought a lot of shame to my body and I felt like my body had been taken away from me. I'm definitely not um, comparing it to anything to do with your assault, but from what I experienced feeling like I'd lost my body, it was just for me, I eventually realized that sharing it and talking about it was the right method for me to be able to accept it mentally. The more I discussed it with people and the more I explained it and the more I kind of like just realized that this thing is saving my life. It, it just made me a lot more comfortable with it and it definitely helps me progress mentally. First of all, I'm devastating to, to hit, obviously hear that news, Michelle. It's um, you've gone through such a, such a full on time and to have that assault nine years ago uh, on top of that is um, such a traumatic time for you. But like you mentioned with that whole Me Too movement, I think it, it's great to see that women are becoming more empowered too. I guess, open up. And if there's any one positive that comes from what you went through nine years ago, like you just mentioned before, it's kind of made you a stronger woman. And it's Mm -hmm. obviously clearly made you realize the importance of really sharing how you're feeling, sharing your emotions. And um, so hopefully, I suppose if that's one up that you would ever have a positive that it's set you up in a way to to really know how to deal with adversity. A hundred percent. And it really was, it really did set me up. And I said that multiple times through my journey that I would have dealt with it completely different. And I just want to address Dahlia to say, you know, everything's subjective. So don't ever feel like you can't compare it anyway. My whole thing is all of us and every single person listening and everyone out there, you should never be ashamed of stuff that happens Mm -hmm. to you. Like that's the reality, like whether you have a stoma, whether you've been raped, whether you lose all your hair, whether you have to have a prosthesis bowl, like it doesn't, this is not stuff that we chose. This is not stuff that we've done to have this happen to us. This Mm. is purely something that we shouldn't be ashamed of. We should be proud of ourselves that we're still able to stand here and be like, you know what? I did. And I'm still here. I'm still human. And I'm still fighting the good fight like everyone else. Love that. And so just really quickly, do you have any advice based on what happened with you with your assault for those women out there who have experienced something similar? What what, what advice would you give to them, those women uh, and men? Yeah. And really, I'm so glad you said and men as well, like all people. Um, 
I mean, every situation is different. I would just say, you know what, just because other people don't believe you doesn't mean that you're not validated in your feelings. I would say 100% back yourself. I would encourage you so desperately to find proper support, um, whatever situation you're in. Like I, even through this cancer journey, I've called Beyond Blue. So I'd always encourage people to call Beyond Blue. And I'm sure you guys will upload all the mental health information on your 25 yes, Stay Alive. It's um, the fact you've gone through this all before you've then had this huge thing with your cancer. It's how uh, you're extremely brave to, to, I guess, talk about it so openly now. Uh, and like you said, for those listening who have gone through any sexual assault or something similar who haven't kind of come out yet with it all, uh, we'll definitely be putting some links uh, after this episode. And I'm sure Michelle herself, if those have gone through a similar thing, would love to love to chat. Hit me up anytime, anyone who wants to chat. Like I think sometimes it's just getting that someone wants to hear your story and someone believes you because that's, I think, was the hardest mm. thing to prove it was actually real. So so if anyone wants to get in touch with Michelle, she's more than happy to discuss her story or help you through anything that you need. So please feel free to reach out to her if, if, if that's something that would benefit you. Yeah, look, it's uh, absolutely. And it's it's one of those things, it's a bit of an unexpected part of your story when we talk about your cancer. But it, like you said, it definitely shaped, to, shaped who you are today and it's really almost helped you go through your cancer journey and we might just jump back into that sort of the cancer journey side of things um i suppose let's talk about your chemo days we've spoken about chemo before and like i was a typical chemo patient i was very pale skinny bald um you know that type of visualization you look up chemotherapy patient in the (laughs) oxford dictionary see a picture of hugo there with his oh literally i was i was the chemo up his nose shaved head pale body Big scars down his chest. He was like the textbook chemo patient. I kept all my hair and I put on um, a a small amount of weight. And and for you, Michelle, what experience did you have? Yeah, so um, I don't know if you guys know much about the RTOP chemo for lymphoma because obviously chemochemical therapy, it's different for every cancer and every subtype of cancer. Um, With lymphoma, they can't remove any lymph nodes. So the chemo has to, like, so they can't remove the cancer out of you basically. So the chemo has to be the thing that kills or shrinks those um, tumours. It was... The first day I got told I ha- was going to have chemo, um, my hematologist said to me, if you don't lose all your hair, I haven't mixed your cocktail of drugs right. So I knew I was going in and I was not going to have any hair. I think the textbook sort of Hugo looking um, cancer patient is what I expected, but I was on quite heavy steroids and my body actually responded really well to chemo. So I put on 20 kilos, which was wow. for me as a female quite confronting. I recently lost 20 kilos in hospital from my my bowel cancer journey. So it uh, would have been would have been nice if I could just maybe have grabbed some of your 10 kilos yeah, or so on. somewhere. In between. <laughs> I'm happy to do a swap anytime, my friend. <laughs> well, well, you're, you're looking you're looking great, great, Michelle. I was going to so say you look you're, these days. Yeah, you're looking. You're looking, looking oh, thank you. Yeah, I dropped about 10, so I'm like halfway there. Um, So basically when I first started to gain weight um, from my chemo treatment, I said to my hematologist, like, what's going on? And he said, no, 
for me, it's a good thing if you gain weight. And every chemo is different. So please, I just want to make that very clear when I'm saying this, because I don't want any listener to be frightened if they are losing weight. Um, but he yeah. just told me for my type of chemo, it was beneficial for me to gain weight. It meant that it was more likely that the treatment was working other than the opposite way. Michelle, you strike me as the type of person who seems quite, we spoke offline briefly about your, your chemo and you seem quite educated with the whole process and how you actually found your six rounds and what you found really helped for you going through your chemo. Because when I went through chemo, I was only 22 and I really didn't know much about it. For those listening who might be going through chemo, who might be affected by it, who might have family members or friends about to commence chemotherapy, noting that all chemo is different, well, not all chemo is the same, but what are some key takeaways and some advice that you can pass on that really helped you going through your chemo? Yeah, so um, Hugo, I think at first, good to know it's not as scary as as you think. Medical science has come so far in the last 10 years and with things like um, steroids and I know with my chemo, even though it was a full day infusion, the following day I had injections which boosted white blood cells. So I was lucky enough to never have my bloods go into unsafe zones. I never had a blood transfusion, which is very common for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And yes, yeah, so I um I I I have to go do my injection right now. You've just tri- <laughs> you've just prompted me. <laughs> just give me one second. All right. What's the podcast here? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, guys. Just give me a sec. Last injection. For those listening, wondering what's happened, at what's happening, Dahlia did actually, at the start of this podcast episode, get us to remind her if she was going to forget her injections. And as we'll talk about <laughs> injections, it prompted Dahlia to go take her injections. <laughs> so there you uh, go. <laughs> thanks for that. So the one that I just took is something that simulates white blood cells to be released from your bone marrow. So for me, the side effects will kick in probably Saturday evening and from my hips upwards, all of my bones begin to hurt. So they kind of ache like I've done a workout, done push-ups or something like that. So (laughs) that's what happened with me. (laughs) Well, back to the podcast episode. Uh, Thanks, (laughs) Dali. So Michelle, you were saying, so after the injections you had, but then you so you made the point that chemo isn't as scary as people might perceive it as. But what were the yeah. few things that really helped you over that? Uh, how long did you have chemo for? How many months in the end? Uh, so each chemo cycle for me lasted 21 days. So six times 21. Who's is... good at maths? 120 uh, days. Four, six, eight, 10, 120 four. days. So yeah, 126 days. Four months. Yeah, so four months chemo. I So I really focused, Hugo, on supporting my body through it. I didn't know a lot about chemo. I actually didn't even know chemo was chemical therapy and it was different for each cancer. Like that's wow. how uneducated I was with it. Um, it's just I remember the first IV going in and I remember thinking, oh, is that it? Obviously, <laughs> that changed as time went by. I did some things to help support myself. So I'll just quickly talk about those things. So I really am quite passionate about meditation. I actually meditated daily, morning and night. I know Dali is me- a big one. Dali is um, a big one. Huge into meditation. I'm actually missing my meditation class tonight. So I'm going to go to the catch up one tomorrow because without going to it each week, I, I tend to sort of like slip up a little bit. And I think that going to the classes and doing it regularly and practicing it is really important because from the when I first started um, meditation, which was uh, last December, it's, it's a skill and it's something that you have to develop and it's something that you have to work on. It's not something that you'll be able to do straight away. 
something that you have to work on um, and progress with. So that's awesome to hear that it's worked for you as well. Yeah, being patient with yourself with meditation is the biggest thing and to know there's no right or wrong. So even if people are thinking, oh, I can't just sit there, there's thoughts going on, just stick with it. That's how I started with it too. Um, And I just thought, you know what, our brains tell our bodies and cells things. So obviously our brain tells our arm to move or our digestion to work or whatever. So I thought if I tell my cells that what I'm putting in my body is medicine rather than the last 30 odd years where I've heard chemo is poison, then my body's going to respond a lot better. And a hundred percent, it truly actually did. I definitely think yoga plays into that and you'd probably agree, Dahlia. Oh, um, absolutely. Move, it's such a, it's almost meditation for the body. And it's also moving to get oxygen all through your body is so important through chemo. And even to get through those sort of stiff movements and keep your body agile really just makes a huge difference. Because you're sleeping as well. Like for me personally, I had a lot of fatigue. I do. I have a lot of fatigue and exhaustion. So to keep active through that process is really important. They very much encourage you to be as active as you're capable while you're going through chemo. Um, For me personally, doing yoga like during infusion, I'm actually infusing right now and I went to yoga today. So I know that I feel so much better after I practice um, yoga. And I think also having the ileostomy at the moment, my large bowel has been dormant for nine months. And so I believe all of the stretching and different poses, held, etc., would really be allowing my bowel to have a little bit more movement rather than just nothing. Definitely. So I'll, I'll be able to tell once I have my reversal what kind of um, results I get. But for now, yeah. I think that that's what I'm in control of. And so... No, it's a, it's a, good, it's a good point, Dalian. But for those listening who are going through chemo, for example, don't feel guilty if you can't do some of these things. Precisely. Because obviously, yeah, obviously every, every... Like I know, for example, myself, I was in chemo for a full week. Every cycle I had and I could literally hardly walk up and down I know everyone's body is different and also every chemo chemo cocktail is different too. So there are some, some do smash you a lot harder than others. Certain people react better than others, but the same mindset of just, even if you get up out of the bed and just go for a walk out and some, get some fresh air, or if you just do a few stretches or whatever, or to your letterbox or like uh, Michelle just mentioned, even if you try and get into that meditation space, all these little things help but just don't feel guilty if you can't do as much as someone else is kind of what I was just wanting to jump in there. And Very say. important point, Hugo. Thank you for bringing that up. There's some tips that people can definitely take away. And it's just one of those things that I wish I knew some of the, just those little ones before I actually started my chemo when I was only a, a naive 22 year old. Uh, but look, you have obviously gone through it all remarkably positive and remarkably strong uh, to get through all those chemo days. And I suppose, when was it when you finally got told that you're in remission? So I got my, sorry, I good old chemo brain. So I've got everything written down here. I It's a good point. We didn't actually, um, the chemo brain. I, is mm-hmm. there, what is the, the, cause I often like joke about it with Amber, you know, I've been in four years now of chemo, five years off chemo. But I often joke if I do something that's probably me just being a typical male, I sometimes say, no, it's my chemo brain. She, she often laughs at me because it's been five years now. <laughs> no, I've used the chemo card way too hard on day. <laughs> chemo brain is very real and my short-term memory is shocking right now. Like I'm forgetting what I said two minutes ago. 
I do sometimes still be talking through a consult with a patient and halfway through I've forgotten completely what I'm saying or why I'm saying the story, but it's getting less and less. My father-in-law said to me it lasted for at least two years for him. So 100% is absolutely like uh, it's definitely a real thing. I'm still going to use my chemo card for my chemo brain for when I, when I forget things. So if Amber's listening, I'm sorry, but it's very, it's very real. So <laughs> I'm just like arguing with Dave. He's like, you just said Friday. I'm like, no, I said Thursday. He's like, you said Friday. I was like, Thursday. Was like, <laughs> don't you, Thursday. don't you fight with me, Dave. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my so, God. Um, you sound like me and Danny. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, yeah, um, Danny, Amber, Dave, we're sorry. But also, we're not sorry. <laughs> and, sorry, not sorry. Not sorry. <laughs> and we're not wrong. <laughs> so we'll just move on there because otherwise we'll just keep yeah. sidetracking each, so, each other. Your chemo brains and we'll never finish the podcast. But. <laughs> no, exactly right. So remission I got. So on the 15th of August, um, so I did a PET and a CT scan. Um, that um, is the only way for um, them to find out remission for lymphoma. I had six centimetre lumps in my sternum so by my heart and chest and they completely shrunk to nothing and Perfect. which is absolutely incredible incredible um i lo- all uh anything active in my neck absolutely went to show nothing so the pet scan showed cold which means awesome. um they gave me the first complete metabolic remission for yeah. our chop chemo congratulations it's amazing to hear that michelle and you're, you're finally in complete remission you you have been so now for seven eight months which is amazing um so i suppose moving from that though back to your kids children side of things yeah um, that's what i was just about to ask have they given you any indication on how long you have to wait because i've been told i'm going to need to wait two years post chemo before trying so actually exactly the same as me, Dahlia, um, 24 months. Uh, so basically with lymphoma, it's high grade, so it's very quick moving. Um, the, my hematologist said if it comes back, it'll come back quick. When I, when I first got diagnosed, people were saying, oh, lymphoma, that's the cancer you want to have. Um, I, at first, I was really resentful, like, what do you mean? I don't want a cancer. But now I understand that um, it's less likely as time goes on that it's going to come back. So instead of waiting like a five-year, he said he's happy for me to try in two years. This was at my first metabolic remission. Um, in terms of fertility, because I was put into menopause, I came out of menopause uh, probably around December, January of this year. I got my cycle back, not regular. At this stage, we're still in a little bit of a limbo mode with uh, what's going to happen with that. But I'm hopeful. It's like my whole time through my cancer journey. I've never thought I was going to die. Even when because my hematologist always said 50-50, I can only give you a 50-50 chance because he's so conservative. I... I just knew it and I do truly believe one day I will get to be a mum and um, I look forward to that day. Right, look, if you, you don't conceive it. naturally, my husband's adopted and he's my, he's, the favorite per- he's my favorite person in the world. So you've come out of it pretty optimistic, but what are some of the mental health and anxiety issues that you've faced post-treatment and post-remission? Yeah, so I think um, one of the main things that I'd mentioned, first of all, was the fact that my husband and I grieved at different times. So I really, as I was saying before, I really made myself feel the emotion. Um, I think offline I was speaking to Hugo about it and I was saying that even um, I find it 
found it hard to connect sometimes with the emotions because it was so overwhelming. So when he would go to work, I would help on my treadmill, put on really, really sad songs, a picture of either my lost grandma or like my dog in front of me. And I would just bowl my eyes out because I knew it was so important to move that emotion to out breathe. of my body. Exactly. Yeah. Because he was holding it together, not only for me, he was holding it together for his dad, for his mom, for his sister, you know, everyone. I think that's when my mom and also my husband really crashed. And it was quite, it was quite interesting situation. After because, remission is when they crashed. Yeah, because okay. they could finally breathe. They could finally stop and go, she's not going to die. It's okay. And it was hard to interpret his grief and not take it personal as in, oh, are you not happy I've been in remission? Because all of a sudden this person who was like doing everything for me or, and helping everything all of a sudden became recluse. But yeah, I think it's one of those things with the emotions which you've touched on, Michelle, that it is, it is important to share your emotions. And I think sometimes bottling things up isn't good because it eventually just gets so much. And I think being able to, to grieve is all a part of the, the process. Now, there, there's no right or wrong way to go about it. I found for me with meditation and a lot of what I've been taught so far is that the things that you think are important and they affect you physically. That's at least my belief and understanding. Yeah. And so if you're bottling things up and you're just thinking about things on repeat in your mind and you're not sharing it with anybody else, it's absolutely going to cause your body strain and stress. And so I think that's another important thing to mention. No, absolutely. And I think it's, um, it's an interesting one. And I know you've got such a remarkable story, Michelle, and, and you're very open on us now about one of the most difficult things you've actually faced, believe it or not, with what you've gone through, which like we said, it could literally be a Hollywood movie in terms of some of the adversities that you've had to overcome. You're finding now being in remission for seven, eight months, you're actually struggling quite a lot purely from like post-cancer remission. And it's an interesting one that we definitely want to cover off in more detail in another episode. But I suppose, what is some of those key things that you talk about when you say you are really struggling post-remission? Like for those listening, what do you mean by that? Basically, for me, it was dealing with other people's uh, grief and emotion not matching mine. So um, I processed mine through chemo. So my husband started processing his with my remission, which was, yeah, it was just really hard to be on different sort of levels with that. He finally started to grieve when I was starting to celebrate. And then the, I guess, same with my mum and things like that. And there's things where um, I would have things that would pop up that would concern me, like chest pain and things like that. And I really didn't know who to go to and who to talk to about that because I didn't want to put that extra guilt or fear into my parents. I didn't want to share that with anyone I knew. You know, it's just, uh, it was, it's really hard to, to sort of trust my body again, even though I, you know, had that intuition. I've, I pretty much made the biopsy happen. It was just really funny that because I had felt so well when I got sick that I um, didn't really know, like now if I have something going on, I'm not sure what it actually is. And I think another thing that really just shook me a bit was how after I came out of survival mode, so through all through chemo, I think I was purely in survival mode and in survival mode, obviously your brain doesn't have much time to think of other things. So the moment I came out of that, and I was told, okay, you're okay, on your way, and I'm going to see you in three months, and off that's it. Uh, off you go. Uh, made me really 
start to I started to feel normal again. But as I started to feel normal, all those old things that tied into what I related to my self worth. So whether I related like my physical appearance to that, or my functioning, or being able to do a full vinyasa flow yoga class, and all these things, yeah. just really got to my ego where I never had an ego through chemo. I was fine without all of those things or I was just so happy and proud of myself with what I was doing. Everyone else is like, okay, you're good now because they want to believe you're good. And I just struggled to find that space as to where do you process your own feelings? And that's why I've done a few things to you know, do things just for me. So in July, I'll go, I'm going to Bali for a seven night yoga retreat um, awesome. by oh, myself. That's amazing. Yeah. I really want to do that myself, actually. Yeah, look, absolutely. And it's, um, you're amazing with what you've gone through, but no, thanks so much, Michelle, for sharing your story. And I think, like I said before, if this was a Hollywood movie, I think we would honestly kind of say, surely that isn't true. And I suppose if you if it was a Hollywood movie, who would you want to play you as the lead? lead? Oh, good question. That. I was just thinking that as you said that, I was thinking, oh well, who would play me? Uh, <laughs> oh. My mum's my always said that uh, I look like Jake Gyllenhaal. My brother always laughs at Ooh. that. So apparently, I love Jake Gyllenhaal. Everyone thinks I, I look like the brown girl from the Saddle Club, whoever that actor is. So she should <laughs> me, I think. Um, well, someone told it said Rita Ora, and I was like, I'll take that. So we got Jake Gyllenhaal, Rita Ora, and then who would you be, Michelle? I think you could, I reckon, Anne Hathaway. Ooh, that's Anne who Hathaway. I'm feeling. Anne yeah, that's who yeah. I'm Ooh. feeling. No, all done. Right, all right. Yeah. I so we got Rita Ora, Rita Ora, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Anne Hathaway. We might have to reach out to their managers and see if they want to. Get involved in a movie. <laughs> but I just want to really quickly say one, a massive thank you. And two, Hugo, I think you're absolutely amazing because one of the main things that I also struggle with is being hyper vigilant, but also being scared to be proactive again because it's like, oh my God, I don't want to go back through that journey. And I just yep. want to say from listening to both of your stories, you both absolutely blow my mind on how inspiring you are both of you but I also just give you absolute yeah just I don't know what the word is because my brain won't let me but I'm like you know saluting you right now like sorry thank you no no, thanks thanks Michelle but we're very much the same way to help people to be aware and to do something about it, be proactive and prevention, prevention, prevention. That is like just the ultimate message to spread. We really appreciate you saying that, Michelle. And I think that it's why Dahlia and, and Dahlia and I are so passionate about this podcast and 25 Stay Alive is that we have this platform that we can get amazing people like yourself on the show to share your your journey with other people. Uh, nah, thank you so much. And I just want to do like a real shout out to everyone listening just because I think no matter what situation you're in, if you're doing the best you can and even if you don't think that's good enough, it is good enough and you're freaking amazing just being living, just continuing to go. Even if you're just lying down, you're just breathing, you're still breathing, you're still fighting and that is freaking amazing and I think there's nothing more amazing than that human spirit and you know even if you ever don't think you're good enough I'm here to tell you you 100% are I don't even know you but the fact that you're human and you're trying it makes you fucking good enough so hell yeah yeah oh yes to that well said Michelle see you later everybody Bye. bye you've been listening to the 25 stay alive podcast 
subscribe on iTunes or Spotify to get fresh new weekly episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 25StayAlive. And feel free to send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.